This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval by History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. One year ago, on the 24th of February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. The past year, has been devastating for the people of Ukraine, with a loss of lives currently estimated at over 40,000, alongside immeasurable destruction to cities, towns and villages. While the war and invasion were largely driven by modern geopolitics, the history of the two countries have also played a part, and especially the part of Ukraine and Russia's history that relates to the medieval period. In this episode of Gone Medieval, I'm going to be talking through some of this history, and particularly that relating to the Rus and the Viking Age. Because in many ways, that is where the story begins. We're also going to be hearing back from two experts who have taken part in Gone Medieval and other History Hit interviews before. The first of these is Dr Olenka Pevny from the University of Cambridge, who talked to Matt Lewis about the origins of Kyiv. The second is Dr Fedir Andrushuk, who is the director of the National Museum of the History of Ukraine, who I interviewed last year at a conference at the University of Liverpool. around seven months before the invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin published an essay entitled On the Historical Unity of Russia and Ukraine, which set out some of his imperial ambitions. In the essay, he argued that the people of the two countries share a common history and identity, and that Ukraine had been unjustly taken from Russia in more recent times. Other Russian propaganda has similarly painted Ukraine as lacking any unique history separate and apart from Russia. Part of this line of thinking relates to the attitude that Russians and Ukrainians are one and the same people, stemming from the Kievan Rus and the descendants of the so-called Rurikid dynasty that dates back to the 9th century. But how far back can we trace this joint past? What do we really know about it? And how do Russia and Ukraine differ in the way they see it? 
Putin endorses this narrative. In his article, he writes, Throne of Kiev held a dominant position in ancient Rus. This had been the custom since the late 9th century. The tale of bygone years captured for posterity the words of Oleg the prophet about Kiev, let it be the mother of all Russian cities. To many, these people known as the Rus, or the Rusians who give rise to the names Russia and Belarus, are synonymous with the Vikings. But that's not entirely accurate either. It's a much more complicated story than that. Here's what Olenka had to say about the Rus. Yes, it's fair to say that we begin to know more about this region when the Norsemen coming from Finland and Norway and Sweden begin to make their way down the river routes to Constantinople and they begin to serve in the Constantinopolitan Palace Guard and begin to travel around the world and we begin to hear more about the Rus in historical Byzantine sources. And this is how we begin to imagine the Rus. And we also know about the Rus from the main chronicle for the Rus period, which is the chronicle called the Povist Vremenichle, which is the tale of the bygone years. The only English translation that exists calls it the Russian primary chronicle, even though we, of course, realize there was no Russia or modern nation state at this period. But part of the reason why we have these misconceptions is because of the loose translation of the word Rus. The truth is to know about the Rus is really quite complicated because I think as we begin to realize how complex our global world is, we begin to realize also the fluidity of meanings of words and of concepts the way the word Rus was used was also not constant, not even in the medieval period. So if you read what is referred to as the primary chronicle or the Povis Vremenigliat, you begin to see that the term Rus is differently applied at different points of the chronicle. So at first it might refer to the Norsemen coming down the river routes and establishing trading settlements along the river routes. Then eventually you begin to see that it refers to a broader ruling class that is already intermarried with the Slavic populations. And then even later, by the 12th century, it refers to the Rus lands. And Rus was never a state. I think that is one of the biggest problems that we have in studying this period. Fadir also commented on how problematic this is, this idea of a singular Rus origin in the way that Putin presents it in his essay. He also explains the differences in understanding of this history in Russia and Ukraine, and not least the contributions that archaeology could make. Russian scholarship is basically preoccupied with only one problem, its origin of Russian state. This is pretty much they are very happy to do. But quite a lot of such research is based on written sources which have a later origin. And this is contracts against the Ukrainian scholarships, which are actually dealing with the issues such like what origin of these sources, where are the ideological implications to create them, and uh, stuff like that. And particularly they are highlighting this uh, chronological distance between years and the events it described, 200 years gap. That is why it's important to know where come this information from, which the Chronicle was relying. The rural archaeologists can tell us a completely different story 
and particularly during recently time there are a lot of finds and what is interesting we have quite I think interested a collection of objects dated to the Vandal period the 7th century 8th century it's, some of them are quite high but I think it's probably something we need to rethink about the beginning of the Viking age but what is important at the time it's a bit saying something about contacts between Scandinavia and the population of Ukraine which was actually previously to this when the Rurika dynasty installed in Kiev. So I think this is a very interesting discovery in a new page actually in this story. Now the connection with Scandinavia and the possible Scandinavian origins of the Rus has been very contentious and led to what has been known as a Normanist debate, with one side arguing that the Rus were essentially Vikings or Normans, and the other side, the anti-Normanists, arguing that they were anything but. We do know that uh, the Viking is a conventional term from the seafaring people trading and riding and uh, colonizing part of the European countries. And you can't find uh, the Vikings in the Russian history. And the reason for this is that they pulled by two other terms, the Ross and the Rangians. And both mention it in the tale of begun years, which actually a literary source which are basically dated to the beginning of 12th century. This source actually tells us about the invitation of the Varangians to rule over the Slavonic and Phoenix-speaking population. And this is basically the start of this debate, because debates about the origin of Russian state, and this is the start actually when the Rus began called by the Russians. <laughs> Of course, there have been different opinions, which actually were trying to identify the Varangians and the Russians as Scandinavians. And this debate, they started in the 18th century and had been continued until their recently time. But during the Soviet time, these discussions tend to be like a debate between two academic seats. One of them is situated in Moscow with another one in Leningrad and the scholars they were representing a normalistic position and those who were working in the Moscow anti-normalistic. Normalism at that time it was like to be academic dissident and the explanation for this is that when the Soviet Union collapsed they lost interest to this subject. So this sort of degree of connection is very much about how much of a link and what a role the Scandinavians had I suppose. Yeah it's all this discussion between normalism and anti-normalism it was basically based on the written sources which have late character. And of course, archaeology could actually contribute much more new material. And this is why it became more important discussion, because these finds, we are finding them in different places of Eastern Europe, and they need to be explained. But let's backtrack a little here and consider what we really know about the earliest Rus'. That written source, The Tale of Bygone Years, claims that this story begins in the 9th century, in the year 862, when Rurik and his brothers were called in from the north to rule over the Slavic people. Now, there's no real archaeological evidence for this happening at that precise time at all. But we do know that people from Scandinavia started to make their way down the eastern river routes and establishing trading settlements from the 8th century onwards. One of the first of these is Staria Ladoga, near modern-day St. Petersburg, which allowed for access to the Baltic Sea trading networks. Soon after, other similar sites and artefacts 
began to appear along the river networks. And in these areas, the Scandinavians met and interacted with the Slavic people. Olenka explained who these Slavs were. One of our issues is that we know very little about the Slavic people in the beginning. So we think the area that is today the Eastern Slavic world, so the area north of the Carpathian regions, was settled sometime in the 6th century by a group of peoples that we refer to as Slavs, who spoke a common language, so usually referred to as common Slavics, common language. And they settled in the area north of the Carpathian mountains, and from there they spread to Central Europe, and the language of the Slavs became distinguished into three different groups, South Slavic languages, the West Slavic, and the East Slavic. And the Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusian languages belonged to the East Slavic group, which occupied the area north of the Carpathians, around Kiev, the Dnipro, the cities of Novgorod and Pskov. They were very disparate. The Slavs were composed of tribal units, and usually the names of the tribes took the names of local features of the environment. So we had the Derivlane, so they lived Derboy's wood, they lived in the wooden areas, the Polane, the field areas. And each one of these tribes, as far as we know, probably spoke slightly different versions of the common Slavic language and had different forms of government and different religious and cultural practices. Over on the Warfare podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War... And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get manoeuvrability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts. Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united, and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts and join us on the front lines of military history. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
What did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Now, there's no doubt that the Scandinavians interacted with the Slavs, but there is a lot we don't know. We don't know how many, we don't have many accurate dates, and we don't really know exactly what the relationship was with the Slavic people. Much of that has been because of the strong focus on Western Europe by researchers. Before most of Viking countries, activity was basically concentrated on the presenting results of studies which actually were dealing with the western part of the Viking world. The eastern part was basically very few presented. But it's important to remember that the eastern part of the Viking world was very important and it's also quite early period of time and we can find still a lot of new information which can actually contribute to our current knowledge about the Viking age heritage. We can't see these people. It's very difficult to find them in the cemeteries because we don't have much information. If we compare the number of Scandinavian artifacts in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe, so it's Eastern Europe, it's revealed much more. On the other hand, it is still discussion what objects can be identified as a Scandinavian or inspired by Scandinavian cultures. There are a lot of attempts have been made by historians. But we do know quite a lot about what the Scandinavians traded down those Eastern routes. The slave trade was an important part, so much so, in fact, that the very word slave stems from the Slavs. And one of our key sources of knowledge, Fedir points out, is from coin hoards and silver. We have written sources telling us about the importance of slaves and also fair trade as well, the finds of silver coinage, particularly Islamic coinage on the territory of Ukraine. It's important in trade transactions which were going on in Ukraine. And of course, the content of these hoards revealed the connections between Khazars and different parts of Islamic world with the territory of Ukraine. The hoards is a very interesting source of information because it actually can reveal different direction of this context, which actually did not not just to the east, but also to the west and north and stuff. That is why it's important to study them. So, we do know quite a lot about the contact and connections. But when did these ruse first become something we could describe as a state? And do we actually know much about who those people were? We don't have a direct written record until a little later. The tale of bygone years, establishment in 862, of course, is very likely purely a medieval invention. But the very first reference we have to the Rus in a written source is from quite an unexpected place, namely Francia, because in 839, so several decades earlier, a contemporary document reported a delegation from Byzantium arriving at the court of Louis the Pious, the Frankish emperor in Ingelheim. And with them, these delegates had a group of men who called themselves the Rus. They'd been sent by their leader, 
I'm a vouch for by the Byzantine Emperor. Now, there's a lot again we don't know about that particular delegation. But what this does mean is by that very early stage, we already have an established group calling themselves the Rus, with a name, an identity, and a leader. And it already established diplomatic connections with Byzantium. But in terms of their towns and cities, from these early stages again, what we know comes mainly from archaeological sources. The trading settlements soon start to grow, and one of the towns that becomes really crucial is Kiev. Olenka explained to us how Kiev became such an important centre. The Norsemen were sea nomads. They made their way down river routes. So it wasn't land that defined their state at the very beginning, but rather river routes and trading routes. So if you were to have a map of very early Rus, I would just not draw borders, you know, have things fizzle out towards the edges and highlight the river routes upon which all of these great cities of Rus that became the centers of principalities or the centers of Rus rulers developed. And Kiev happened to be on the Dnipro River on the way to Byzantium, to Constantinople, to the Greeks. It was a convenient place to gather merchandise. So basically what was traded from Rus lands was fur and honey and most importantly slaves and brought to Byzantium and then goods were returned to the Rus lands. So Kiev, I think it's reasonable to assume that when the Rus came down these river routes, there were already settlements along these great and convenient points of trade and fishing. So Novgorod's one of these cities, Kiev is one of these cities. The Rus developed these cities into greater merchant centers of trade. And Kiev was one of these centers. And then, of course, there are all of these legends about the importance of the river for Kiev. At the beginning of Rus history, the capital wasn't in Kiev. We had rulers such as Oleg and Russian Oleg, who tried to move his capital somewhere further west, closer to Constantinople, the Bulgarians. But in the end, it was Kiev that became the most convenient center. And succession is a really interesting phenomenon in Rus lands. And we see that there are certain principles at play. So, for example, the principle of seniority. But Rus had what is called system of succession that is a rota system of succession. So basically, the first three sons of a ruler occupied the throne, and only then did rulership pass on to the children of the eldest of the three sons. As you can imagine, as they had more and more children and multiplied, this was a very difficult system to follow. And so in several cases, we have meetings recorded in the Povist about how to resolve issues of succession. So it wasn't just succession of different rulers in line for the throne, but these rulers were associated with different Rus lands. And so in a way they had to move from one land to another, and that got pretty tiresome, and you didn't want to lose your patrimonial land. So with time, in the 12th century already, you begin to see princes 
thinking about developing their own patrimonial lands and dividing their patrimonial lands among their sons. So in a way, the golden age of Kiev is really a very brief period, very end of the 10th century, early 11th century, when Christianity first comes, it's under Prince Volodymyr and Yaroslav that we see things fairly contained and Kiev as this central unit, but you begin to get Novgorod developing with the prince playing a secondary role in the Novgorod Principality by 1169, the prince of Vladimir, so north, they begin to try to develop their patrimonial lands to the extent that they write to Constantinople and want to have their own metropolitan in this land. Apart from the horrific loss of lives, the war, not unusually, has also had a devastating impact on Ukraine's cultural heritage. Even though the deliberate targeting of religious and cultural sites is prohibited by the 1954 Hague Convention, museums and archaeological sites are of course not safe in any wartime situation. In my interview with Fadir, I asked him what that was like for him back at the start of the war as a director of a museum with very valuable and priceless collections. Fadir described to me how, on the morning of the invasion, after reports of the attacks on Kyiv's airport, he was called very early by a colleague and asked to get to the museum as quickly as he could. The museum's collections were at risk and needed protection. The exhibits needed to be dismantled and secured to guard them from bombs and looters. Fadir told me that he had no idea if any of his colleagues would turn up to help, as after all, the city was being bombed and they and their families were in mortal danger. But when he got there, around 25 of them had risked their lives to help save the museum. For the next month or so, Fadir and some of his colleagues essentially moved into the museum to continue their work of protecting the artefacts. I asked him, how they chose to prioritise in a situation like that and whether they had any guidelines for what to rescue first. He told me that they did, in fact, have an instruction manual for what to rescue first in the case of a disaster or attack. But this manual was written in the 1970s under Soviet rule and at the time, the top priority were the objects that related to communism or that could further communist ideologies a stark reminder of just how political the past has always been. Thankfully, to date, Fadir's museum has largely survived unscathed. Numerous museums, however, have been severely damaged in fighting and missile attacks, and others again have been extensively looted by the invading forces. At the time of writing this, in February 2023, one survey counted 553 damaged and destroyed cultural heritage sites and institutions across Ukraine. Although naturally, as the war is still raging, it's tricky to say if this figure is accurate. One site, Shestovitsa, southwest of Chernihiv in the northern part of Ukraine, is one of those that in an early part of the war was occupied by Russian forces. 
Shestovica was a crucial site during the Viking Age, a Rus-fortified trading settlement by one of the river routes leading down to Kyiv and eventually down to Constantinople. I've excavated there myself with my Ukrainian colleagues, digging into some of the numerous burial mounds that are spread across the open plain and through the surrounding forests. There, archaeologists have found burial chambers and graves that are almost identical to those at sites like Birka in Viking Age Sweden, but with artefacts that are a mix of Scandinavian and Slavic types. But the site has been contentious. In 1946, under USSR rule, when the anti-Normanist perspective was in full force, one archaeologist was sent to Shestovica to prove that there were no Scandinavian burials there at all, which was, of course, exactly the opposite of what was found. More recently, a brother and sister buried in the same mound were found through ancient DNA analysis to have Swedish or Norwegian-like ancestry. If you want to find out a little bit more about Shestovica and how it fits into the bigger Viking world, I've written about it in my book River Kings. But there's still an awful lot that we don't know about this particular site and how the Scandinavians and the Slavs interacted. Last spring, when Shestovica was occupied, Russian forces dug trenches and buried tanks across the site and the wider area. Although it has since been liberated, we still don't quite know what might have been lost. There's a quote by George Orwell that fits the fight over Ukraine's past and especially its Viking Age and medieval origins very well. In his dystopian novel 1984, he said, Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. For now, we can only commemorate those who have died in the senseless war, who have been injured and their millions who have lost their homes. Do still remember to support the people of Ukraine and donate help to some of the organisations that collect for them. Now, if you want to hear a little bit more about this, you can always go back over some of our old Gone Medieval episodes, for example, the full episode on the origins of Kyiv, Dr. Olenka Pevny from the University of Cambridge is in our back catalogue. This has been an episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget that you can subscribe to our newsletter if you want a little bit more medieval history in your inbox every week. It's called Medieval Mondays and just look in the episode notes for how to do that. If you don't already, please do follow and subscribe us. Give us a rating online. It really helps other people find the podcast. So for now, thank you so much for listening. My co-host Matt Lewis will be back with the next episode and I will be back in a week's time. Until then, have a brilliant week. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.